Hey, it's Mike Dougherty from VT Digger. We'll have a new Deeper Dig podcast up on Friday. But today, we wanted to share the audio from our live event this weekend with John Hickenlooper. Hickenlooper was the mayor of Denver, then served as governor of Colorado for two terms. Last month, he announced he's running for the 2020 presidential nomination. On Saturday, he sat down at the Flynn Center in Burlington for a conversation with Jen Kimmick, the co-founder of The Alchemist Brewery. The interview is about 80 minutes long and covers economic development, retail marijuana, the presidential race, and lots more. Check it out and read more about it at vtdigger.org. Enjoy. Governor Hickenlooper, it's a pleasure to be here with you tonight. You bet, Jen. And congratulations on your recent announcement to run as a Democratic candidate for President of the United States. Well, I decided the Republican was too steep a hill. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. It's a joke. <laughs> Thank you for being an early craft beer pioneer. I have fond memories of visiting the Wincoop Brewery with my husband John in the late 90s, and we were really inspired by not only the great beer, but the community pub that you opened, and then we followed your footsteps and opened our pub in 2003. At the same time you were opening up Wincoop in 1988, our dear friend and mentor Greg Noonan was opening up the Vermont Pub and Brewery right across the park here in Burlington. Did you know Greg? I did know Greg. Of course I knew Greg. There was a whole kind of that class of 87, 88 that we all opened kind of together. And uh, there were a couple afternoons, lovely, delightful afternoons I spent with him in his pub. I don't remember all the details, (laughs) but he was an amazing pioneer. He was a great guy. Greg would have loved to have been here with you tonight. Yeah. Um, At the same time you were starting your craft brewery, you were a, a pioneer, you were also the first brewery that I know of to make a collaboration beer, and probably the coolest collaboration beer ever, and it was a collaboration beer before they were trendy and cool, and you made it with this guy by the name of Kurt Vonnegut. (laughs) Can you tell us about Kurt's Mile High Ale? Well, I'll tell you that that it's one of those strange things that happens in life sometimes, and my mother was widowed twice. Her first husband died at the end of World War II. She had two kids. She married my dad, had two more kids. And then my dad died when I was eight. So my dad was a very funny, robust uh, guy. And and so my mother was obviously heartbroken. And so people didn't talk much about my dad. And then you go forward to when I'm 46. And I've been a geologist. I've gotten laid off. I've opened the brew pub. The brew pub finally, after a few years, takes off. and, And everything's going great. And I brewed special beers on occasion for friends. And, and I did one for this, this friend, Bill Havu, who owned the one-over-one art gallery. Kurt Vonnegut had been trying to... He lost his muse, so he was making silk screens of some of the images and, uh, and characters from his books. So Bill Havu called up and said, uh, would it be uh, all right... If, would you do a special beer with a special label with one of his images, and we'll call it Kurt's Mile High Malt. And I said, of course, I've read everything he ever wrote. And, and Bill said, great. And then three weeks later, Kurt Vonnegut called, and, and my office was a bullpen, right? A bunch of people in desks, no walls. And the, I pick up the phone, I said, this is John. And this voice says, hi, this is, this is Kurt Vonnegut. But, but before we talk about beer, can you tell me what happened to my good friend, John Hickenlooper, who I went to Cornell with? You have the same name. <laughs> and I said, that was my father. Uh, he died in 1960, and I was speechless. And that began a friendship that we continued uh, really up until, until Kurt passed away. He was, 
I mean, we just had these wonderful, you can go online and Google John Hickenlooper and Kurt Vonnegut, and I think you can still get a video that he did when I was getting roasted right after I got, became mayor. And he basically pretends, you know, he, he says, well, you know, you were so charming and gregarious, but you're, I knew your father, and, and, and he was blah, blah. I mean, and, and then he goes, he goes, well, the truth is, you should know, that man you thought was your father was not your father. John, I am your father. It's, it's, it's online. Anyway, and when, before that, when I, tra- when I told him, I called him up, said I was going to run for mayor of Denver, right, in 2003. And I never ran for student council or class president or anything. I just thought that someone from small business should, you know, should, should try and bring some common sense into what I was calling then the fundamental nonsense of, of government. And I said, Kurt, I'm, I think I should... <laughs> and Kurt... Kurt looked at me, uh, or didn't look at me, he was on the phone, but I, I knew he was looking at me telepathically, and he, I, I said, Kurt, I would love it if you would be willing to endorse me, and he could be quite a curmudgeon, he went, oh, if I endorse you, I'll have to endorse, uh, you know, how many friends I have who want to run for office, I'd have to endorse everybody, and then people would be calling me all the time, I wouldn't have a moment's peace, I said, Kurt, Kurt, just a question, don't even think about it, don't, I, I, I wasn't serious. The next day, I got a fax. He didn't really like emails until the very end. He would use faxes. And I got a fax. It said, I don't believe in endorsements. I believe in hope. I hope John Hickenlooper is the next mayor of Denver. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's a great we, story. We, we put it on bookmarks, and we got our volunteers to hand it out at the, at the public libraries, because the people that go to a public library usually live in the city and county, and also are usually voters, was our guess. Yeah. So Kurt helped get me elected. That is a great story. <laughs> so you started your career as a geologist. You got laid off. You got into the craft brew business and realized you were really good at it, became mayor of Denver, and then governor of Colorado. Now you're running for president. Why? Why get out of the private sector? What draws you to politics? Well, that original... I mean, I, when we opened the wine coop in, in 88, and... We did it in an abandoned part of lower downtown Denver. The rent was $1 per square foot per year as a reflection of how bad that neighborhood was. And I went to the other restaurateurs. There were only about six of them, seven of us all together, and, and just said, we got to help each other. Soon we were buying pint glasses. We took out ads together in the Denver Post. I mean, before they'd all, everyone hated each other. It was com- competitive and they didn't trust each other. But we helped create Lodo, which has become this like, national model of urban rejuvenation. And in 2003, when, when Mayor Wellington Webb was term limited out, a, a bunch of my customers, they'd been critical of every elected official. And I kept saying, but this is America. They're us. You should run for office if you don't like them. And somehow they turned that around on me. <laughs> and, and so I ran on this notion of, of kind of the fundamental nonsense of government that I was going to bring. Just I knew that government was different. But I wanted to bring in some of the logic of small business. Mm-hmm. Of what, it, what is service, right? When, you're, when you run a restaurant, you really pay attention to what people want and make sure that they genuinely want what you're, de- you're delivering. There's a real... Uh, that, that sense of service is a real relationship. And in, in a funny way, for our restaurant, Wine Coop, I'm, I'll bet yours is, your business is a similar way. Our primary service was to our staff. And we figured if... if everyone says the customer comes first. But we wanted to make sure that... that you know, our staff knew how much we cherished and valued them and that they would then take care of the customer. 
And I just thought that, that city government should be like that. And everyone said, you don't have a chance. I said, I wouldn't do a negative ad. I've still never done a negative ad. And I went out and, and it was funny that I ran on the Denver's 20% of the whole metropolitan area. You know, it's a pretty big city. And the city hated the suburbs. The suburbs hated the city. I said, that's crazy. If I get elected, we, I will proclaim that Denver could never be a great city without great suburbs. And I'll do everything I can to lift up the suburbs. And everyone said, you're crazy. You're going to share sacred senior water rights, very important in the West. And you're going to do all these things for the suburbs. Denver hates the suburbs. Well, and I ran against four lifetime politicians, really talented people with constituencies and who actually understood politics. And in, in the end, the, the people of Denver didn't hate the suburbs, nor did the suburbs hate Denver. It was the politicians needed enemies to attack. And I got 65% of the vote with, a, with that positive, just like I did with the restaurant owners, lift everyone up. And then I ran for, you know, we, we went to, I went to all, out to all 34 mayors, and we got all 34 to unanimously support a tax increase to build what we called fast tracks, 122 miles of new track, the most ambitious transit initiative in the history of the country. We got all 34 mayors together by me going into their offices, you know, not waiting for them to come to the big city, but going out to each one and, and listening, really hearing what their issues were. And I mean, that, were, I mean, that whole process was so successful that then when, Mayor, when Governor uh, Ritter decided he wasn't going to run for re-election in 2010, I ran for governor and I became, I ran the same thing, I'm going to lift up the whole state. Denver was 40th in job creation then. I said, we're going to lift up the whole state. We're not going to leave behind the rural areas. Uh, and, and, and we're just going to do what we did in the city, do what I did in, in lower downtown with the other restaurant owners. And everyone said, You're, you know, you'll never win. I, I became the first mayor of Denver in 120 years. That's how long this bitterness had gone on. The first mayor of Denver in, in 120 years to get elected uh, to become governor of Colorado. And, and now, I mean, we went, and we will be, by the end of 2020, maybe a month or two into 2021, but I think by the end of 2020, we'll be the first state to have broadband in every single city and town in the entire state. Wow. That's incredible. That's really incredible. I know you've done a lot in Colorado, uh, made a lot of investments in infrastructure and economy other than broadband. Um, I want to talk about Vermont's economy a little bit. One of the biggest challenges we have is a declining workforce. Can you talk about some of the investments you made in Colorado to attract and retain young people? And what suggestions do you have for us here in Vermont? Sure. And I think it's the right question. Uh, we thought about, because we, we were having the same problems, uh, our young people were going to San Francisco and New York and Chicago. And we decided that we would take our capital investments and try to imagine that we were millennials. And obviously, I'm not a millennial. So you fast forward, and, and even where we didn't have investments, we wanted to champion things that young people valued. So fast forward, we gave a, uh, we now have a thousand miles of bike trails in metropolitan Denver. We have, we celebrated musicians and made them, you know, made them uh, significant, we gave them status. We do uh, uh, parties for any band. So we attracted <clears throat> bands. So I don't know if, if, you have, if, if, if we have an audience with some young people, but, I mean, the Lumineers 
are a, a Denver band. Uh, Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats, The Fray, uh, One Republic. Uh, I mean, we have all these amazing musicians, and so we celebrated them. We now have more live music venues in Denver than there are in Austin or Nashville. It's, it's not bragging if you can do it. That's what Ernie Banks said. <laughs> but anyway, we invested in the things that, that, that we thought young people, if they had control of the money, what would, what would young people and what kind of infrastructure would they invest in? But uh, getting light rail, a big part of our push to, to get transit. And, and nowadays, you know, certainly in a smaller city like, like Burlington, you might do something like uh, a bus rapid transit or something that's it's, uh, less capital intensive. But, you know, so many of the millennials don't want to have two cars. Right? And we made it so that Denver, doesn't, you don't need two cars if you're going to live in Denver for you know, most of the occasions. Those investments helped really turn Denver and ultimately Colorado in, into kind of a magnet. Like we had beautiful landscapes and we had you know, lots of tourism just like you did. We started using some of our tourism dollars, which we'd advertise in New York, and we, we'd twist the ad just enough to say, you know, you're coming for this vacation. Think about if you lived here. You could have a vacation every weekend. And, you know, we attracted, we began to get some young entrepreneurs. The, the goal, you try to attract young people, and if you do that successfully, you'll get lots of entrepreneurs. And you need, you know, let's not kid ourselves, you need schools that work, and you need a, a healthcare system, right? You've got to pay your teachers something uh, that matters. I mean, you've got to have realistic uh, compensation for teachers, but... That kind of investment has really turned Colorado around in the last 15 years. We've been, you know, one of the top destinations for young people in the whole country. And our economy, I mean, we were down for a while there. We were about 2.3% unemployment. I mean, it was actually unhealthy. There was, so, there was such fierce competition for employees. That's what we're faced with here in Vermont. Really? Yeah. And in, in regards to the economy, can you talk about the critical role that immigrants, legal and illegal, play in Colorado? Sure, and I think <clears throat> we have, and I'm unabashed supporter of, of, of immigration. I think that this country was built on immigration. Right now, if you look at the Department of Labor statistics, we have about 7.2 million job openings unfilled in the United States and about 6.3 million people unemployed. So even if we had perfect skills training which we don't, right? So many of those 7.3 million or 7.2 million jobs are unfilled because we don't have the right skills training in place. But we still don't have enough people. And if you were going to squint your eyes at the landscape of the country and say, if I really wanted to hurt long-term our economy, maybe I would design a system where we would attract the best and the brightest, the most talented electrical engineers from all over the world. We'd give them PhDs at our best universities and then we forced them to leave our country before they could possibly do something as awkward as starting a business and creating jobs. And I think what we need to do in immigration, it's, and it's not just technology, it's it, all manner of, of our jobs are, are going unfilled. And many of them are high-skilled, but not all of them. There, there's no machinery yet. There's no robot that will go out and pick apples or, or, or pick blueberries, pick peaches. And right now, we're at the edge in Colorado where we're not getting all of our crops harvested. Mm -hmm. That is, I mean, that's a, a crisis in its own self. And I think that, uh, look at construction jobs. A lot of those jobs, people can't get them filled. Mm -hmm. I was talking to a, a, a person here. He's got a construction company 
just before this show, it was describing that there are all kinds of jobs, skills, skilled and unskilled, that he can't fill. And somehow we've got to make, again, smaller cities attractive so young people want to come back. And then at the same time, make sure we have the skills. And ultimately, I think we've got to get, we've got to rethink our immigration program. Obviously, we need to have an ID system that works. I don't like paying people under the table. I mean, that's a, a great incentive to, to get the system fixed properly so it, it actually works. But to continue this, this non-functioning status quo is, is self-destructive. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and again, <clears throat> again, we have the same, the same challenges here in Vermont with construction and farming. Um, I think with our economy, Colorado and Vermont really have a lot in common. I also think as far as the climate goes, Vermont and Colorado have a lot in common. We're both mountainous <laughs> states. We both have large rural populations. Both states are also part of the U.S. Climate Alliance and have pledged to stick with the Paris Climate Accords. That pledge is to reduce greenhouse gas pollution by 26 to 28 percent below 2005 levels by 2025. Sadly, neither state is on track to meet those goals. What actions can individual states take to reduce climate pollution in ways that strengthen the economy and are equitable to our most vulnerable citizens? Excuse me. Absolutely. And I am, you know, I think one of my staff members, uh, interns, went and researched, and I think I'm the first professional geologist ever to become a governor in the history of America. I'm not sure what that means. I'm not sure it's a good thing. I, I know, I'm, I'm, I'm 99% sure that I'm the first brewer since Sam Adams in 1792 to be a governor. <laughs> but I think that masters in geology, I mean, I understand science, I, I understand it's not perfect, but, but the most recent uh, reports that have come out suggest that we're within about 12 years of irre- irreversible uh, damage to the planet. Uh, and, th- and that the consequences in the oceans, uh, onshore with the, the, the extreme uh, weather events, you know, these incredible typhoons and, and hurricanes, and we've had record floods, record f- fires from the record droughts. Uh, we are at close to that point of irreversible concern. It needs to be everybody's responsibility. Mm-hmm. And there has to be a recognition that science isn't perfect. They say 12 years. It could be nine years or eight years. And we're, there are places uh, th- where we've, we've been able to bring people together. In, in, in Colorado, uh, we have a, uh, you know, a, uh, the normal battles between the old traditional economies and the, and the new uh, green economies. We were able to get the oil and gas industry to sit down in the same room with the environmental community uh, and actually hammer out methane regulations. And methane is 25 to 40 times worse than carbon dioxide in terms of it's uh, as a, a climate change pollutant. It's, it's really one, it doesn't last as long as CO2, but it is very, very intense and very, very uh, destructive. The oil and gas industry, and, and trust me, the oil and gas industry and the environmental community hate each other. I mean, in the original meeting, I couldn't even put out an agenda or a timeline because both sides would have suspected that I was helping the other side. And we wanted to start with a, a, a flat table and a blank slate. Fourteen months later, they reached agreement. And, and the, the criteria we laid out at the beginning was no red tape and bureaucracy. We'd make sure that every dollar made the air cleaner and that we'd share the credit. So 14 months later, we had the executives from the oil and gas industry and the environmentalists taking credit together 
And the oil and gas industry agreed to pay $60 million a year to basically it's the, the, the equivalent of removing 320,000 automobiles a year from, from our roads. And Canada is now rolling these uh, methane regulations out nationally. We're hopeful that, that Mexico do, do it this coming summer. Uh, unfortunately, of course, President Trump has rolled them back. They were on all, all federal lands. I mean, that's something we could do in every single state, attack methane, and then we'd have to do it globally. Whatever we do in the United States almost doesn't matter if we can't build and re-engage our allies and, and our relationships with the rest of the world to make sure we get that done. The other thing we've done, two other things quickly in, in Colorado we've done. One was we were able to go out and uh, really make the application processes for wind and solar as efficient as possible. Again, protecting, protecting the public interest, making sure no one's building something where the local community doesn't want it. But we are build, we're going to close two coal plants, uh, and we worked this out last year, but we're going to close two coal plants, and in the process, we're going to, for the first time in the country's history, repl- replace those coal plants with wind, with solar, and batteries. No natural gas is, as filling in when the sun doesn't shine, right? So we're going to... And, and, and even more exciting than that is we went so aggressively to make it easier for, you know, make it really, really much easier for, uh, for them to get their permitting that for the first time we'll not only close the coal plants, we'll not only replace them with wind, solar, and batteries, but the monthly bill coming to the consumers for their electricity will go down. And that's when the, when the market can begin to accelerate and, and, and really push a transition from the old, you know, carbon-emitting fuels into totally clean energy, that's when change is going to happen really quickly. Uh, and then the last thing we got from the Volkswagen, you remember the Volkswagen diesel scandal, yeah. huge settlement. We took a big chunk of our settlement and said we're going to use, in Colorado, we're going to use this to build a rapid recharging stations for electric vehicles, right? So as that demand grows, and you know, Detroit's saying that by 2022, 2023, every vehicle you can imagine, you'll be able to get it in a, every style automobile you'll be able to get an electric vehicle. We want to make sure the recharging stations are there. Mm-hmm. And then we said, well, let's reach out to the governor of Utah. And said, Governor Herbert, what do you think about it? Would you continue our network into Utah? He said, sure. And then we talked to the governor of Montana, and so he did it. And then we went to the governor of Wyoming. He's a good friend. But Wyoming's a you know, coal state, a lot of hydrocarbons. And we said, you don't want people driving around Wyoming to get to Yellowstone Park. <laughs> And so he did it. So we now, have, we now have 10 states, you know, five Republican, five Democrat, 10 Western states that have all integrated their networks so that as electric vehicles become more popular, you know, the lack of finding a charging station won't be an impediment to, to scaling that in real time. Did you really drink frac fluid? <clears throat> If so, why? (laughs) So, and and I have been excoriated. I'm not sure what that word means, but I know it's not good. (laughs) I I was in my office with the head of one of the oil companies, and I was talking to him about methane. Uh, And and we were also talking about, at that time, the oil and gas industry would not reveal the components in, in any of the frac fluids. And I said, well, we're doing, we make them, if they're going to drill an oil well, they have to drill water wells in five different places around where that oil well is going to be. And then they have to test it every three years, test all the water to make sure that we're not seeing any pollution. 
but if they wouldn't tell us everything that was in the frac fluid, we couldn't be sure of that. And he said, well, you know, we're working that direction. It's sensitive. But we, we might think about it. And this is a prototype that's made. This, is, this frac fluid's made with all FDA-approved ingredients. So it's food quality. I said, yeah, right. And he looked at me and he, and he was offended. And there was a level of trust that was going to happen. We were going to get to methane. We were going to go for it or not. He said, you can drink it. He picked it up. And it was like thick, but, but transparent. <laughs> he took a sip. And I had that moment, whether he, we were going to trust each other or not. And he passed it to me. And I took a, sw- a sip. Because I wanted to make sure that if we were going to get methane regulations done, if we're going to get them to reveal frac, the, all the components of frac fluid, which they did, you're not going to get there without some level of trust. Was, I don't know, it just seemed like the only way I could not separate us. I wanted to be able to bring us closer together. <clears throat> it didn't, ta- didn't have any taste, which was awkward. Just the fact that it didn't have any taste was weird. Last year, a study was released by the Colorado School of Public Health Researchers. They found that people who live within 500 feet of a well in Colorado may experience a lifetime excess cancer risk of eight times higher than the EPA's upper acceptable levels. What do you say to the families who live near those wells, those wells and who have children who walk past those wells on their way to school? Sure. We have studied this relentlessly. That particular study was a professor at the University of Colorado... It was not peer-reviewed, uh, and my scientists in, and my scientists are the most liberal people you've ever met. Uh, you know, our D- Department of Public Health and the Environment, their job is to protect the public safety, the, the health and safety of, of Coloradans, and they disagree vehemently that when you push back, I mean, we can't measure the, you know, with it, when you're five feet away from one of these wells, it's not, we, we've, we're not emitting methane anymore. There, there are essentially, it's rare that there's ever a surf, surface spill. We find the living daylights out of them if they do it, and we clean it up immediately. It's unsightly, and I don't blame people for not wanting to live near where a, a, a commercial operation, an industrial operation is taking place. But unfortunately, people have continued to move out to places where, you know, in many cases in Colorado, these old leases, the, you know, the, oil and glass, the, the people that own the minerals underground are not the same people that own the surface ground, right? Like where someone might have a house. And so those people that own the mineral rights have a right to that private property. And we've offered for those communities that wanted to really cut back on, uh, you know, have any drilling. They wanted to have 2,000 feet or 2,500 feet. I offered as, on behalf of the state that we would pay half to buy that, that little sliver of mineral rights uh, and or you know, probably would have paid 60%. Because this, we're not Russia. We're not China. We don't take people's private property unless we can really demonstrate those health effects that that study meant. If we could have verified any of, those, of, that, uh, of, of their uh, results, uh, I think it would have been a whole different case. Mm-hmm. But we couldn't. I, again, my, our scientists, who, who are very, very liberal, couldn't, could not, rec- not re uh, not create those same those same results. So when we offered to build to buy those the, that private property from people, the the communities unfortunately the communities the people that were close to the drilling were happy to pay something, but no one else in the community really thought the danger was sufficient for them to pay, and that made it it just made it a difficult. Again, I felt that the 
I mean, here's the goal. We need to get away from all carbon energy as fast as we can. Uh, and I don't, I've never backed away from that. I think we are, I think Colorado's the national model of how to make a path to a clean energy future faster than anyone. Uh, I try to keep our focus on that 100% and, and just make sure that those leases, when they become without value, which hopefully will be very soon, it won't be because government took away their rights. It will be because they, become, they became economically useless. I have to ask, is your campaign going to take money from oil and gas companies? No. I don't, we've decided that my campaign will take, accept no donations from any company, any corporation. I want to shift to healthcare now. Um, I want to talk about the healthcare crisis we're having in this country. Americans are suffering and businesses are struggling because of overpriced and insufficient healthcare coverage. Meanwhile, insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies are making millions and billions of dollars each year. As a business owner, I want to get out of the health insurance, company, health insurance business, and a single payer system seems to make complete and total economic sense. You have said that you're concerned that the push for Medicare for All calls for dismantling the current system when less disruptive measures may achieve universal health care. If you become president, what will you do to achieve universal health care if not Medicare for All? So Colorado, and we've worked very hard at this, we are almost universal coverage. We're we're just about almost 95%. uh, And... We did this in a variety of ways. I think our healthcare exchange is, I think, probably the most innovative and most successful in the country. Uh, we expanded Medicaid. And, and, and even as we've done this, we've also really worked hard to control the inflation of healthcare. So much of our, of, of, I mean, if you look at, and this is over the last 30 or 40 years, the inflation of healthcare overall has been astounding. Now, I helped start a community health center in Middletown, Connecticut in 1973. Still there. It's called the Community Health Center. It now has 200 locations. But I wrote a letter to the newspaper in Middletown, the Middletown Press uh, in Middletown, Connecticut, in 1978 that said health care should be a right, not a privilege. And that is, that's our North Star. I think we want to get to universal coverage uh, as fast as we can. And the way to do that, I think, is again to expand Medicaid all across the country. And, and then to have a, a single-payer option. And I'm, you know, if we could get to Medicare for All and people would embrace it, I'm 100% there. But there are 150, 160, some say almost 170 million people that have, uh, that get their health care uh, through private insurance, most of it through their, their workplace. Many of them are unhappy. I get that. But... The, the polling we've seen says 100, maybe even more than 100 million people are happy with their coverage. I don't see they're all going to leave. And I think forcing people to leave something that they trust and rely on is just a recipe for division and battling. And I mean, the reason I'm running for president is because I think this country is in a crisis of division, right? Trump is the symptom. He, I mean, defeating Trump, in my opinion, I'm sure there are Republicans here, but I think... Maybe not in, my, in, my, in Burlington. I think, I think defeating Donald Trump is absolutely essential, but it is not sufficient. We've got to begin figuring out how we're going to bring this country back together again. And, you know, taking away something 
through, through government edict, whether it's you know, private property or, or someone's health care that they like, is, is going to be a challenge. I think it's, if you have a, a, a public option so that people can choose, if they don't like their private insurer, they can choose to buy into Medicare. Or if, they're, if the program they can afford doesn't cover their health care needs that they can buy into, into Medicare, I'm all for that. But we also have to look at issues like how do we get more transparency in, in, so that when you, if you're going to get, if you're t- taking your child to get their tonsils out, you should be able to, on your, your handheld device, see which clinic, which hospital, what they're going to charge and, and make sure that there's a minimum quality standard they're all held to, mm-hmm. right? And, and I think that those, those kinds of things have to happen as we're doing this, this transition into universal coverage. Uh, we need to control that make sure that we control costs through things like transparency. The other thing is Medicare, um, Medicare in itself, there, there are certain parts of Medicare, they don't um, allow doctors to use uh, uh, telemedicine. It's not covered under Medicare. And if you think about it, more and more people are we're going to be able to serve more people uh, successfully using the Internet. I mean, think of a doctor looking at, again, your child has a rash, and the doctor says, oh, my gosh, I'm not sure. I can't really tell from this image. You better come in. I should check it. Or the doctor could say, no, that's poison ivy. You don't have to come in and put some you know, calamine lotion on it. Those kinds of innovations uh, are, are what are going to allow us to get universal coverage and improve quality. Right? Nothing stays the same. So we have to improve quality, quality but also control costs. And access. I, as an employer with less than 50 employees, we spend almost $400,000 a year on health insurance. And I'm not happy with the health insurance we have. Our employees aren't happy with the health insurance we have. Many of them don't go to the doctor because they're afraid of their co-pays and deductibles. Are Americans really happy with the insurance that they're getting from their employers? Um, or is there a path to a single-payer system? What about getting everyone in the same market pool so that we can bring the cost down? Well, I think, again, if, you, if it's as good as what you're describing, I think people will flood into that market and it will happen naturally. The polls that I have seen, and, and polls are what you make of them, right? It's how the questions are asked, and these polls could be wrong, but these were allegedly objective polls by nonprofit organizations that didn't have a dog in the fight. Say over 100 million people are either happy or very happy with their, with their insurance. You know, if we provide a pathway so people can come in to, to, and choose Medicare, and you're right, that it's what everyone's going to want, it might take an extra couple of years, but we'll get, we'll get to that scale pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, I know you've said that you don't want marijuana to be your legacy, but I think we'd have a, <laughs> we'd have a lot of disappointed folks here tonight yeah. if we didn't talk about marijuana. Um, Vermont is currently working on legislation to regulate and tax marijuana. I want to spend some time talking about the lessons you have learned in Colorado and what advice you have for Vermont as regulation and taxation is imminent. Let's start with the environmental impact that the commercialization of growing has had on Colorado. The few available studies of marijuana cultivation have uncovered potentially significant environmental impacts due to excessive water and energy demands and local contamination of water, air, and soil. In terms of environmental impact, what tough lessons have been learned in Colorado, and what recommendations do you have for Vermont? So the grow houses, so the the vast majority of marijuana in Colorado that is grown legally is grown in grow houses with electric lights. 
So you need to have your systems wired and we make sure they're inspected. And we didn't do that as quickly as we could have in that first year. Uh, to be honest, we thought people would grow it outside in fenced areas. Uh, I mean, we knew that a lot of people would grow it inside, but again, the scale and how quickly it, it, it changed, uh, you know, it was, it was more than what some of our, our professionals had, had anticipated. I think more to the point, the, the water and the, uh, the, you know, putting so much water through these indoor systems did create some uh, water issues with the, the runoff, but I don't think they've been that significant. There, there was one study that, that, that uh, projected some concern, but we've got the Department of Agriculture now that, that looks at uh, inspecting both water, runoff, uh, you know, make sure that people aren't using uh, dangerous pesticides. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the issues that I would say right off the bat, the federal government obviously doesn't let us bank. You, in other words, since it's against federal law, you can't, your, your, your marijuana industry in a state like Colorado can't legally use charge cards or, or banking or checks, mm -hmm. which is crazy. So if you wanted to guarantee that a new industrial a new industry would be corrupt and full of racketeering, what should we do? Oh, let's make sure it's all cash, right? And, and so, and the same thing is true. Why don't we have, why doesn't the, the, uh, the Department of Agriculture in the United States do the testing and, and, and set the standards by which people can grow marijuana if they choose to legally do it? And why can't the, why doesn't the, the FDA well, why doesn't the country first remove marijuana as a, as a Schedule One narcotic mm -hmm. to begin? And then make sure that we, we, we remove any unnecessary uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, blockages or, or objects to get in the way of actually doing more medical testing so that like any other uh, pharmaceutical, we can get to a point where we have national standards of what what types of, of, of issues can marijuana be used for medically and, and make sure that we know whatever hazards there are, either for recreational use or as a medicine, that, that people are clearly informed about that. And that is one of the things that, you know, people ask me whether marijuana, whether I think the U.S. government should legalize marijuana. No, I don't think, I don't think the U.S. government should go to Maine or to or to Alabama and say, you've got to legalize marijuana. They didn't do that with alcohol. They left it with each state. And I think if, if you do it that way, and yet make sure that they decriminalize simple possession in those states where it's legalized, and get rid of those felony records. I mean, look at, look at the old system where we sent millions and millions of kids, most of them kids of color. Not only do we send them to prison, but we made them felons. We made already difficult lives impossibly more difficult. For what purpose, right? I mean... It, Absolutely. And, and it seems to me like those folks are really missing out on the marijuana boom. What can we do to bring them into the, the boom? Well, I think that the, the, the marijuana boom is, is something just, it is a social phenomenon that is something that it, it, a lot of people who are slow to accept change are having a lot of, a very difficult time accepting it. And I know a lot of, of some of my older friends in Colorado still can't stand the thought that, that this is happening. And this is so often the way change, the way change is, and I, I respect that. I understand how difficult that is for people. And that's why I think that communities, states, should make their votes first. And most states, like Colorado, 
we've given our local municipalities and our counties the right to adjudicate on their own you know, or, or to, to make their own rules and regulations limiting or permitting uh, growing, s- distributing, selling marijuana in their communities. I think that makes it a little easier for people that are so upset. But I don't think we should go out and... It's not the same as, as, as civil rights, right? Where we can go out and say, listen, this is America. Everyone gets the same opportunity to create their American dream. Everyone has the same basic human rights. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Many Vermonters, including myself, want to see licensing preference given to existing small farmers in our state or young entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs of any size, color, really. If you could go back and rewrite licensing regulations and give small local farmers more priority, would you? And what things should we think about here in Vermont to keep out big business from coming into our state? Well, certainly that's... That's, that's, a, um, that's a good start. Uh, the, you know, one of the things that we made sure they couldn't do is we didn't let them vertically integrate uh, when they came right out of the chute just because that is another thing that will attract big businesses. You're going to see you know, one of the things about our business system, which you know, our, somebody asked me on TV a couple of weeks ago whether I, I was a capitalist, which is like, a friend of mine, what I should have said was, you know, it's as if you asked me whether I was a nerd in high school. I would say, wouldn't be my first choice of a label, but I'd be hard to argue with, right? <laughs> and, and I think that, you know, if you're going to put a label on me, I was a capitalist, I started 20 businesses, created 1,000 jobs, but capitalism right now is broken, and this is going to come back to the marijuana here in a second. But capitalism used to provide security and opportunity for the middle class and for poor people. And that is certainly not the case today where we have, by some reports, 75 to 80% of American families are having a hard time balancing their household budget at the end of every month. And, and there's, it's absolutely inconceivable that is the America that most of us grew up in. And whether it's You know, for the last 20 years, we've seen a steady decline in the number of people starting businesses, business startups. And I'm not just talking tech. I'm talking about people just starting up a sheetrocking company or a commercial painting company. Uh, And those startups, those people that begin businesses, are are generally where all the new jobs come from. Uh, Big business somehow comes in, and we have this, this sense that everybody deserves a right to sell their business if they want to. And people feel very strongly. You'll, I think even in Vermont, you'll find out when you try to regulate the size of these businesses, that in and of itself limits someone's ability to sell it. And you're going to have to negotiate that yourself because as we tried to protect small businesses, and I am, in my heart and soul, still an entrepreneur and a small business person, it, it is difficult to navigate how to protect and motivate small businesses. Craft breweries are the perfect case, right? I think we can provide incentives. Uh, we have a temporary uh, reduction in the, in the amount of taxes that small brewers pay compared to the giant brewers, right? Mm-hmm. I'm all for that. I think those kinds of incentives for small businesses that are actually creating jobs, you know, make, make perfect sense in, in all manner, within construction, with, I mean, making premium coffee, however you look at it. The, the, we actually almost tax businesses against hiring employees. Look at the payroll tax. 
right? I mean, imagine that, you, and I, you know, someone's going to point out 20 reasons why this is wrong because I haven't done the math, but why couldn't we take the payroll tax, or at least the part that, that the employee pays, but maybe the whole payroll tax to encourage businesses to, to hire more people and, and say, we're going to replace that with a VAT tax that's exactly the same size. So it's not a big tax increase, but suddenly we're not going to give, you know, we're not going to give an incentive for businesses to have less employees. Mm-hmm. And I think that all has to come together with when you're looking at, at marijuana as a new industry. Right now it seems easy to protect small businesses, but I can tell you, you know, just five years down the road, we already see people that are saying, hey, I got here first, I did great, I don't want to make $50 million. I'm happy to make my, I don't know, $600,000, more money than they ever dreamed of. Mm-hmm. And they want to sell, and that's gonna, those businesses are going to aggregate and get much larger. Right. And with marijuana, it's even more challenging because small businesses can't access the financing that they need. Is that correct? Are you seeing that in Colorado? Yeah, absolutely. And that's... Uh, we, we had legislation last year that would have, would have allowed outside money to come into Colorado. And we were told in no uncertain terms uh, by our, uh, our federal attorneys that that was something that the, you know, the Attorney General Sessions, that Attorney General Sessions was willing to tolerate this marijuana industry, which he hated, but he tolerated unless he began seeing that kind of financial intervention from out of state. Uh, and so we, we blocked that bill. Great. As a mother, I have concerns about the commercialization of marijuana, especially in regards to processed marijuana products, edibles, including candy, drinks, oils, and waxes. In the brewing industry, we have strong regulation that requires us to be responsible with our labeling, and it is illegal to target youth. How can we apply the same standards to marijuana here in Vermont? Not only can you, you have to. And, and we had, when we started with edibles, they were making these things that looked just like gummy bears. They would put a brownie and they would have eight doses of THC in a single brownie. We had people going to the, hot, the, to the emergency room. So we banned, you can't make it look like candy, you can't make it look like animals or anything that would be attractive to a child. Uh, I, I think you know, we have regulations about all kind, you know, the, uh, any kind of, of pesticide, in, in the absence of the federal government, we did this ourselves mm-hmm. and started investigating, asking every single grower, what, what are you using? And then we started testing it mm-hmm. or finding places where someone else at some point had tested it. And we pulled some of them off the market and said, you, this is now banned mm-hmm. in the state of Colorado. But this is a new industry. And to think that industries are by themselves going to, you know, regulate themselves is... is It's naive. It's just not going to happen. Right. As legalization expands throughout the country, the value of marijuana will likely continue to decline. We are already seeing this, particularly in Colorado and California, where the commercial marijuana market is saturated. I believe Vermont has a unique opportunity to set itself apart by creating its own brand. If we do this right, I believe we can be a state that is known for high-quality, organic, low-impact flour that is hand-trimmed. What do you think about this? Great political campaigns have ended on less. (laughs) Um, I'd have to claim that I have no experience in in marijuana branding. Uh, 
Um, have, have, but you've seen the price of marijuana drop. You've seen, we've seen billboards in Oregon, you know, cheap ounces all day. Are you seeing this? Are you, are you seeing a saturation? We haven't seen it. I don't think we've seen quite as much in Colorado, but certainly that's yeah. the way, you know, a business cycle works, mm-hmm. right? There, there, there's strong demand. People build up capacity. At a certain point, you have extra capacity. Then people will reduce prices to try and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, get rid of their surplus. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is the business cycle. Uh, I think technology is going to help that happen less. Mm-hmm. And in a funny way, and, and this is going to be counterintuitive, but one of the things that we're still battling is we still have a, a black market. And, and I remember talking to a 17-year-old kid right after we legalized it. And, 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 you know, I was very worried that we'd see a spike in teenage consumption. And most scientists have told me that, the brain scientists, that this high THC marijuana... When, when, a, when a teenager's brain is rapidly growing, there is significant risk to losing a, a sliver of their long-term memory permanently mm-hmm. with, with fairly infrequent use. And so we were very worried about that, that, that we were going to see you know, some consequence like that. But we haven't seen it. We, we, we didn't see uh, any spike in teenage consumption. And what's been interesting is, so we're about a $1.5 billion marijuana industry in Colorado. It's probably about $100 million of black market stuff. And I asked this kid, do you think that kids are going to, that teenagers are going to be more likely to, to try marijuana, to use marijuana, since the adults have legalized it? Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and he says, no, of course not, you nitwit. Actually, he didn't say nitwit, he used a worse word. <laughs> but he, he pointed out, he said, we already could get it anytime we wanted. The the thing you have to recognize is if you guys get rid of the black market, a drug dealer doesn't care who they sell it to. If you get rid of the black market, at least it'll be a lot harder for teenagers to get it. Not that it's impossible. They said, you know, we can get beer pretty easily. But if you, do, if you drive home the fact of how dangerous it can be for teenagers, uh, you can get rid of that pretty well. And that lower price that you're describing that comes from overcapacity actually drives the black market right out of business. So... It, it does change the, the dynamics of the industry a little bit, but I don't think it's overall harmful when it, if, it, if it is, in effect, getting rid of the black market. Great. Can you talk about roadside testing a little? Yeah, a major issue of, of what, one of the other fears that we were very concerned about was uh, people driving while high. And we made the determination, and, and you can test... You know, we, set, we felt we had to set a standard that would hold up in court. So we picked five nanograms to measure in, in your blood. If you have five nanograms, for most people, and it's like alcohol, it's not absolute. And you're going to get a bunch of lawyers that say, oh, but it's not this, or what about this person? You know, if you're over 0.08% alcohol in your blood, you shouldn't be driving. There might be a few exceptions, but you shouldn't be driving. If you've got over five nanograms of, of THC in your blood you should not be anywhere operating a vehicle. It's the same thing. The tricky thing is we're trying to, when you look at measuring that, uh, you have to take someone, you have to take blood. There's no breathalyzer yet. Now, there are a couple companies that think they're close to getting a breathalyzer that'll work. But so far, there's, there's no breathalyzer that'll, that'll accurately reflect uh, some, someone's uh, THC inebriation. But they are... Uh, they are able to, to do it accurately in the blood. The trick, try, we're trying to get a measure of, of are more people driving while high and is that leading to accidents? Because we have seen an increase in accidents. 
But it looks like the increase we've seen is the same as other states that didn't legalize marijuana. We think a lot of that's distracted driving and cell phones and people looking at their maps as they're driving, you know, trying to figure out where they're going. Uh, but we have tried unsuccessfully to compel all of our local authorities when there's a traffic fatality, we always do a blood test. Well, a blood test is pretty cheap. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, an alcohol test. You don't have to do a blood test. You can get accurate uh, alcohol contents very inexpensively. To do the THC is much more. It's like 300 bucks. So we're, even when we offer to subsidize it and pay the difference to the local municipalities, it's just too big a pain. They, it's, we've had a hard time getting that. So we still don't know whether we're getting you know, accurate data on whether people are driving while high. The one thing we, we've seen is we haven't seen any demographic of increased consumption, people getting high more frequently or more people in a demographic, more people smoking. Actually, that's not true, it, with the exception of senior citizens. <laughs> I'm just talking, these are just the facts. You can draw your own conclusions. But, but based on that, that we don't see more people using it, mm -hmm. We don't think we're seeing more people driving while high, but we are spending millions of dollars a year driving home the fact that teenagers shouldn't take, high, take any kind of marijuana, shouldn't ingest it in any way, and that drivers absolutely should not. And less speeding? And less speeding. Yeah. Um, time has gone by pretty quick. I want to ask you one more question before we go to some questions from our guests here tonight. I truly believe that most Americans are fed up with the divisiveness and anger that is plaguing our communities. We need a leader who will help unite and support all Americans. If you become president, what will you do to start uniting and healing this country? Well, I think that, I mean, a big reason that I'm running for president is I really feel that we're in a national crisis of division and that we never I don't think we've been this divided and I grew up protesting the Vietnam War you know joining in the civil rights protests I don't think we've been this divided probably since the Civil War and we have serious serious challenges to face the the issues of, of climate change we've talked about of health care how do you control the inflation of health care how do we do these huge social transformations efficiently. Uh, automation and artificial intelligence, right? We're trying to scale up our community colleges to, you know, I think we'll get to free college for all. I think that's a goal. We should get there. We will get there. But, but, I, but I think it'll take a while. I, again, we, we just, I mean, we just, our, our national debt is such a, we have to find some ways to, to, to find the resources for that. But I do think we can get to free community colleges in a year, right? And get free skills for everybody. You gotta remember, 70% of our kids never get a four-year college degree. We need to make sure they have the skills that they need. Anyway, these are all issues that we can't tackle when we're divided. Yeah. And I look at what we've done in, in Colorado where, and I really, I look at the other candidates who are, you know, visionaries and, and dreamers. They're mostly, you know, senators and congresspeople. Uh, and I feel like, I mean, it's good to have dreamers, and I'm, I'm a dreamer too, but I'm also a doer. And we've been able to bring the oil and gas industry together with the environmental community and actually get, you know, methane regulations that no one else had been able to get done. We brought together, you know, in a, on a bipartisan way, we, got, we expanded Medicaid and, and got to 95% healthcare coverage. Uh, we've reduced now, uh, uh, we've been able to provide young women the ability to control their, you know, when they, when they get pregnant, when they want to start a family. We've reduced teenage pregnancy and teenage abortion by 60%. I mean, these are the kinds of things that I think the country needs more than anything. And 
The way we've done it, I mean, again and again, when I went to the suburban mayors as a big city mayor, I went to them and I didn't tell them why I thought I was right. I listened to them and I, and I repeated back in their words what I thought their concerns were and tried to, you know, we learned this in the, bar, in the restaurant business, the bar and restaurant business, when someone's angry, you don't ever try to tell them why you're right and they're wrong. And, and it's, a friend of mine pointed out last week that it's also in, in, in couples counseling. It's a similar thing. You, you learn to repeat back exactly in the words that the other person uses. You repeat back their own words to them and they feel validated that, they're wor- that they've been heard. And, and by saying the words, you change yourself. You hear them in a different way. And suddenly people begin to you know, be able to, to, to you know, see some common ground that they hadn't seen before. Now, I'm not saying that you can go to somebody like Mitch McConnell and, and get him to... to to be reasonable in any sense. And, and this doesn't always work. We obviously, we, we, you know, we had the shooting in the Aurora movie theater in, in 2012. <clears throat> 70 people shot, 12 people died. Uh, we came out of that. And I tell you, you know, I saw, I was there at the, the, the mobile command center and saw the video, the, when they first came out with the video, what the crime scene looked like. I'll, I'll never forget those images. And the first thing we did was we committed... In that next legislative cycle, we could have made $30 million to, to mental health because m- so many of these shootings are, are, are suicides in a real way. But we also then went after universal background checks. And like most states, we were getting to 50% through the existing laws, 50% of the uh, gun purchases. But the Republicans were saying, well, but crooks aren't stupid. They're not going to get a background check. Why, are, why would we spend $10 and all of us have to get background checks? And we made the decision we're going to do it anyway. And, and the, we sat down with the NRA multiple times, and they, in the end, refused to be reasonable, just like, <clears throat> just like Mitch McConnell. Um, and we, you know, I made the mistake, actually, I made the mistake of coming home one night and complaining to my son, who at that time was in fifth grade, and he goes, oh, Dad, What's so hard about your job? Making decisions? I said, I said well, Teddy, it's not that easy. <laughs> and he, he looks at me and he goes, Dad, get the facts, make a decision, check next. I, I said, well, Teddy, that's, that's not that easy. And he goes, Dad, get the facts, make a decision, check next. He goes, every day I've got to go into school and learn something completely new I didn't know existed the day before. If I don't get it perfect, the next day is misery because everything's based on the day before. I after five minutes, I said, Teddy, you're right. You know, fifth grade is harder than being governor. <laughs> but but then, I, then I came, I, I went in the, the, morning, the next morning, and I, knew, I, I realized we'd had the national statistics on gun safety. We hadn't gotten the statistics for Colorado. And so we went back, and it took us four weeks, and, and the NRA was unreasonable. And we just, we went ahead and passed universal background checks we were the first purple state to do this. And we just, it was a, a, a bright, clear line that we said we weren't going to cross. We we're going to pass this. But as we were doing that, and, the, and the, I think we can go to every state in America, and when we get these local statistics, I think it's hard for any Republican legislator to back away. In Colorado, in 2012, getting within that half of the background checks we, 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 we did, so 50% of the gun purchases, 38 people convicted of homicide tried to buy a gun, and we stopped them. There were 133 people convicted of sexual assault, 620 burglars, 1,300 people convicted of felony assault. That's where somebody usually goes to the hospital 
and, and they tried to buy a gun and we stopped them. There were 420 people who had judicial restraining orders against seeing their ex-spouse or their ex-boss. They tried to buy a gun and we stopped them. And just in case those Republicans didn't think crooks were stupid, there were 140 criminals who were arrested for an outstanding warrant for a violent crime when they came to pick up their guns. So, and I think, I think if we take that, those statistics in every state, I don't think anyone in a, in a, in a, in a state capital is going to be able to stand up and say, no, no, I don't want this. And then once you start that, I think then you have the momentum to really change public, public opinion. And you didn't take anyone's guns away. And we never took anyone's guns away. We have some great questions from the audience. We don't have a lot of time left, but I'm going to start with this first one from Isaac Bissell of South Burlington. Hickenlooper may boast of a strong state economy under his term as governor, but how much of that was due to oil and gas extraction? (laughs) Um, Oil and gas, I'm not sure what it is. I think it's 12% of our economy, so there's some component there, but it was our economy before... I don't think that part of the economy changed significantly. If you look at where Colorado's... And the other question that I always get is, it was marijuana. You know, we have a $320 billion economy. Uh, maybe it's $330 billion economy now. And marijuana is $1.5 billion. So just, it's about 0.6% or 0.7% of, a, uh, of our economy. What we tried to do was really become the place that young people, and especially young entrepreneurs, wanted to set up their businesses. And part of that means you've got, good, you've got to have good schools, but part of it was the bike trails, part of it was making sure, you know, part of, our, of, of the strength of our economy has come from when we expanded Medicaid. And when you make sure that the workforce is healthy, your businesses do better. That's an economic fact. And you begin adding incrementally these things. The difference between a, a, a remarkably strong economy and a uh, a, a slower, a, a slaggard, a slovenly economy is a couple of percent. So when you are able to improve your workforce, if you're able to attract more startups, uh, if you can stimulate you know, that entrepreneurial vigor, uh, it, it, there's a chain reaction. Then all, you, know, you have these startups and they need more accountants and they need more doctors and they need you know, all the support that goes into a new business. Another thing we did, which I think Vermont could, could capitalize on more, I believe that I think of exports, and, and, and President Trump's war on, on trade is befuddling, right? The, the tariff war is one of, I think, the worst failures I've seen in my lifetime of, of anything. And I view exports as anything that brings money into this country from outside the country, or anything that brings, if I'm talking about Colorado or Vermont, brings money into the state that didn't originate here. And tourism becomes one of our best exports. And one of the tragic consequences that people aren't talking about from President Trump's reign is, is the, the drop in international tourists wanting to come to our country, right? It's more than 8% is what I was told a couple of weeks ago. And that's a drop in, in, in our export capacity, and I think we see it in all states. One of the things we did in Colorado was really pushed our international relationships, talked to our local businesses, asked them to promote tourism in their, you know, if they had an office in London or an office in, in Italy or a loss in, uh, an office in Asia, continued to be part of our ambassadors for, for more tourism. Because tourism, and I think Vermont would be the exact same thing, 
people will come here for, for vacation and if you, if you promote it a little bit, they'll start thinking, huh, maybe I could live here. And, and, and a convention and visitors business on that is the same thing. You know, to, the, those conventions allow your restaurants to, usually there are Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays, which are slow nights in restaurant business. You get that and you'll have more restaurants if you have more conventions. Uh, those kinds of things are, are, make you an exporter. They bring do, new dollars into your community. I think raise opportunity up for everybody. I think those are some great lessons for us here in Vermont. Scott Passage of Callis asks, what will you do to minimize interference in your campaign from social media exploits? Wow. <clears throat> that is such an open-ended question. And, you know, Colorado is, a, is, is the home of NORAD, Northern Command down in Colorado Springs. And in 19, I think it was 1993, they decided to put Space Command in that same center. And Space Command is given the overall primary responsibility for cybersecurity. And so I have seen up close and personal the issues around cybersecurity, not just in terms of someone getting into your, into, into your uh, checking account and, and causing mischief or trying to steal your credit card or that stuff that usually you're protected by your bank on that. Uh, but the stuff that we saw in the election in... in, in uh, in 2016, I think surprised a lot of us. And the inability of our social media to police real facts from manufactured disinformation that, that had a political, political point. You know, I told, I told Hillary Clinton after I saw her, I said, not only, not only were you the first female presidential candidate from a major party, but you're also the first person who ever got your email hacked by WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks and distributed to everybody. You were the first candidate that a foreign government maliciously created false information to, uh, to, to attack and diminish your campaign. But you also were the first person to have the FBI come out and make false accusations 10 days before the election, and you still won. <laughs> anyway, I, I think... I think everyone has to have, I mean, right now on our campaign, you have to have some cyber experts that are out there and, and monitoring and have a relationship with Facebook uh, and Instagram and, and, and be monitoring what people are saying because by the time, you know, what is it that old, there's an old saying that says a, a lie can go all the way around the world before the truth can even get its pants on, get out of bed. And, <laughs> I think that's truer now than it ever has been. And so we have some, some experts and are really looking at how do we make sure that we have firewalls. When I, my cell phone knows such a pain in the neck. Right when I'm about to make a call, all of a sudden I've got to do my second dual authentic that does random secondary authentications. What a pain in the neck. But, but good, right? It, 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 it dramatically diminishes the ability of, of intruders to hack into your, into your system. And I think probably all of us in this country... You know, cybersecurity, everything, I mean, it's probably the next, you know, military-style conflict or next theater that we're going to have most at risk, and we don't have protocols yet. That's a big reason why, you know, President Trump's... People ask me, if, as Commander-in-Chief, how, how would I react? I'll, I'll tell you, the first thing I do, I would not ignore and, and deprecate the most talented 
information and military, you know, intelligence and, and military uh, officers in the world. And I certainly wouldn't alienate and diminish our allies of longest standing. Because if we're going to deal with things like cybersecurity and, and create protocols that are international, we need relationships, we need allies, but we also need relationships, relationships with everybody on earth. And right now we're going in the wrong direction on that. So... I need to squeeze in one more question because you're in Bernie country here. Really quick. Oh, good. You've got lots of time. I'm fine. Why do, you, why do you think you would make a better president than Senator Bernie Sanders? And that comes from Vermont Digger editor Colin Mine. <laughs> That's the second one. Uh, you can end the campaign quickly. Um, <laughs> you will not hear me criticize Senator Bernie Sanders and, and what he did. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's... He, what he did was crystallize the issues of, of the entire country uh, in concise, well-thought-out uh, positions. And this notion that, you know, I mean, I understand that, I understand that just because corporations are having record profits doesn't mean the country's doing better, Right? And I understand that, you know, that, that you know, uh, millennials don't hate the idea of buying a house and having children, right? They're buried in debt. I understand that the baby boomers shouldn't have to choose between, you know, taking care of their parents, their aging parents, and sending their kids to college, in either case when they're not going to have enough money for their own retirement. Those are the issues that Bernie Sanders crystallized that really had been talked about but not put into such clarity that he provided. And while I don't agree with all of his solutions, I really salute his, his ability to create that clarity and allow people to get to the crux of some of the most important issues facing this country. Yeah. I think a lot of us appreciate that. Thank you. One last question. Sure. A ski and a beer. Colorado or Vermont? <laughs> you don't have to. Answer. Wow. So here's, here's the easy answer, which I learned in the beer business years ago. Actually, Greg Noonan might have been the person who told me this. If whatever you're, I mean, beer is food, right? It's not like wine doesn't improve. It's, if it's made properly and not pasteurized, it has a very limited shelf life, right? To be at its pinnacle, probably six weeks, maybe eight weeks. So... My favorite beer is always the local beer, right? It's a great answer. So when I'm in Vermont, my favorite beer is always a Vermont beer. Uh, skiing is a little more difficult. But you know, I did have hip surgery a few years ago and haven't been able to ski, so I'm not sure I'm, it's applicable to my present situation. But I, I, again, I think outdoor recreation, skiing being at the top of that, is something that we have really recruited in Colorado. Uh, I think that, well, however you talk about healthcare, one of the most important things about controlling costs is to get the country to move towards preventable, preventive healthcare, right? And and skiing and hiking. I, I mean, I think, and I think this could be a great future for for, for Vermont and New Hampshire and Maine. Uh, if we'd really drive this home, because 
I mean, our, you know, when I was a kid, all the hospitals were nonprofits. And then all of a sudden, the powers of be decided that for-profit would do a better job, which is certainly looking pretty questionable right now, just in the, given the inflation of the last 30 years. It, it, once you become a business, once you make everything for profit, pro, business is only going to find where they can get, where money is, a, it's going to follow the money. And what that means is if, if you're a doctor and you convince someone to, take, to change their lifestyle and, and prevent them from getting a lifestyle-based disease, right? what, you're really, what your compensation is going to be is zero. But if that person gets the disease and has a health crisis, all of a sudden hundreds of thousands of dollars, thousands and thousands of dollars are going to be spent. We need, and I think outdoor recreation is such a powerful tool to do this, we need to compel people to get outside more often. We, we created something in Colorado called um, Colorado the Beautiful. Uh, you know, that it's, in Colorado Springs is where America the Beautiful was written. I'm just, again, not bragging. You know, Ernie Banks, the Chicago Cubs shortstop, said it ain't bragging if it's true. I'm not sure that's fair. <laughs> but anyway, we, had, we created Colorado the Beautiful to make sure that within 20 years, within one generation, every single kid in Colorado would be within a 10-minute walk of a green space. Right? Just to encourage so that as we go out and get outdoor recreation, you know, people paying attention to almost, I mean, every, every kind of sport you can imagine, any kind of outdoor activity, we want to celebrate. And a lot of the companies that make outdoor recreation equipment and clothing, and I mean, it's an $887 billion a year, and a lot of those companies don't want to be in big cities. Right? They'd much rather be in smaller cities like Burlington and, and in smaller communities even beyond Burlington those are the kinds of places we're trying to kill to get jobs. So I think there should be a united front of, of outdoor recreation support. And so there are now, I think, 10 states that have an office of outdoor recreation. And those offices are really trying to work to facilitate between government and business and then local government, how do we get more outdoor recreation companies in our state? Uh, not to steal them from somebody else, but how to encourage the, the, the people doing the startups to do that. Because I think... Long term, it's clean, healthy business, and it's also going to make people, uh, I mean, help us control our, our own health. Absolutely, I agree. Governor Hickenlooper, I want to thank you for coming here today. Thank you for coming to Vermont. We don't get to see a lot of presidential candidates, <laughs> and you're the first sane one we've seen in many, many years. So thank you. Thank you very thank much. You. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you. It's so great. Nice. Thank you. Mm. Thank you.